And now it's my very great privilege to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Gregory Rodriguez. Gregory Rodriguez is the founder, publisher, and editor-in-chief of Sokolo Public Square. He has written for such leading publications <coughs> as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, Time, and the Los Angeles Times, where he was a longtime op-ed columnist. He's the author of Mongols, Bastards, Orphans, and Vagabonds, Mexican Immigration, and the Future of Race in America, which the Washington Post listed as one of the best books of the year. In 2012, he was named a Goldman Sachs Senior Fellow at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. He also founded and directs the What It Means to Be American project with the Smithsonian Institution. Please give a very warm welcome to Mr. Gregory Rodriguez. Thanks, Lewis. Hi. I rarely come to Socolo events. It's kind of cool. Thank you for coming. Um, before I introduce tonight's guest, I, uh, I wanted to tell you how I am totally ill-equipped and unprepared uh, and not the right guy to do this job. <laughs> this lowers your expectations. <laughs> um, I really realized this yesterday. Uh, is Peter here? You Peter Tukovsky? He's not. He's in traffic. Uh, a, a friend at the Getty uh, said, I'm, I think I'm coming tomorrow. I see that you're moderating. I didn't realize you were so invested in the museum world. And my answer was, I'm not. I just love museums. And that's why I'm here. And I wanted to give you a sense, um, and I look back, I have kind of a crazy schedule and of the museums that I loved in the last 12 months to tell you why I don't understand museums. Um, not list of preference, but these are, the, these are the museums in the last 12 months. I have visited the Har Harriet Tubman's home in Auburn, New York, the Women's Rights National Park in Seneca Falls, New York, the Jefferson Davis Historical Site in Fitzgerald, Georgia, awesome place, the Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz Museum in Jamestown, New York, unbelievable. <laughs> they have the set of room 315 at the fictional Beverly Palms Hotel when they came to Hollywood with the Mertzes. Stunning. Uh, the Ateneum, beautiful, beautiful museum of Finnish art in Helsinki. Uh, the Huntington Library, which last year accepted and cataloged my late father's papers. So how can I not love the Huntington Library? Thank you, thank you, Dad appreciates it too. Um, uh, two weeks ago, I was at the National Steinbeck Center in Salinas, California, and the archivist came out and let me, well, she, she shouldn't have, so I, you know, she should see his wallet with his, you know, the little, the little machines that used to trip your name, Steinbeck's wallet the, the, and his, his, his pipe that were on his desk when he died in New York. Sort of magical. Uh, the, the Prado, which has an amazing bicentennial exhibition, if you're in Madrid anytime soon, really stunning on the evolution of it as a national museum was, and, and its role in society and how it changes. And this is why I have no idea what to ask you. Um, the Heritage Lifeboat Museum in Essex, England. Swear to God, it was one of the oddest museums ever, ever just lifeboats. <laughs> um, the Oberlin Heritage Center in Ohio. I bought a beer glass with the logo of the local 19th century temperance movement society on it. The Stasi Museum and Archives in Berlin. And that's in the last 12 months. I really love what you guys, you women, do. And, there, and so therefore, um, it's really out of some sort of inarticulate love and appreciation for what you do that I'm here. I know nothing about digital anything. I can barely use my phone, but I'm, I, I'm grateful that you're all here, and I'm grateful that you're willing to talk to all of us about your love for museums. 
So that said, um, I want to interview, uh, rather uh, introduce uh, Nicole Ivey. She is a public historian, futurist, and a professor of American studies at George Washington University. She was previously the director of inclusion for the American Alliance of Museums. Gretchen Baker, oh, I'm sorry, Lori Bettinson Varga has been struck ill and at the last moment, and she has asked Gretchen Baker to take her place, and we're pleased to welcome you here. I just lowered your expectations. <laughs> <laughs> and, and no, Lori sent me an email, said you were going to be much better than she was. Um, so I just ruined that for you. Gretchen Baker is the Vice President of Exhibitions at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. She was previously the Deputy Director of Exhibitions at the Field Museum in Chicago. Museum groupies, unbelievable. Uh, and finally, Lisa Sasaki. Um, and we're already kind of, she's telling me ghost stories within the th first three minutes of my meeting her, and I wish they had put you over there. But Lisa Sasaki is the director of the Smithsonian Asian Pacific American Center. She previously served as director of the Audience and Civic Engagement Center at the Oakland Museum of California. And years prior to that, she was here at the Japanese American National Museum, yes. which owns our building and is our, one of our hosts tonight. Yeah. Welcome. Mm -hmm. So I warned you all that out of my ignorance, I wanted to ask some fundamental questions. Um, and I'm going to start with you, Nicole. What is the, and not including any museum you've worked at or worked for, professionally, anything, what is the favorite moment you've ever had in a museum or around a museum and it can't, has to be rated R and below. <laughs> well, um, I did get married in a museum. So. Oh! I said rated R and below. Oh well, I mean, you know, that's pre-wedding. So, um, no, <laughs> I'm not embarrassing my spouse. Um, yeah, I got married at the Fleischer Art Memorial in Philadelphia, PA. And yep, it's a really great museum because it's a teaching museum. So it's an art museum, but they've got so much of the building devoted to classroom space. So, you know, the whole thing about keeping the two people getting married separate, like we did that, like my, my side of the family had a classroom we were stuffed in and his side of the family <laughs> had a classroom they were stuffed in and there's paint all over the place, it was great. Um, and because it's a teaching museum, they let us um, have wine in the galleries. Um, they've got an a ancient European church that they, ancient, Renaissance era, I guess. Um, I'm wrong about that, actually. I don't know when the date is. <laughs> 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 it was old and kind of dangerous because we had like elders. Um, you know, but, it, you know, nobody got hurt. Um, <laughs> I jumped over the broom and so did my spouse. And so that was my, that was like sort of Wonderful. my favorite. But I'm yeah. happy I asked you first. That was a good one. Gretchen, what is mm. the favorite moment in your whole life that you've had in a museum? Um, so I worked at the Field Museum in Chicago, which has the world's most complete, comma, biggest T-Rex in the world. The comma's important. Um, <laughs> and I, just having worked there for 18 years, there were actually a number of moments when I had Sue to myself in the great Stanley Field Hall, and so I'd usually get a chance to be down there at night before all the lights were turned off, and it was just kind of her and me in the, the beautiful hall. And I mean, that's a, a very special opportunity to get 
working in a museum to have some of those insider moments, but. Ben Stiller moments, they're called. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I slept overnight a couple times too, but there were no ghosts, <laughs> so. Lisa, you have a two, two good stories to precede you. Yes, uh, they raised the bar on that one. Um, I think my favorite moment in a museum had to be at the Metropolitan Museum in New York. And it was during an undergraduate class where they actually allowed us to choose one object um, from the collection. And I was a history and archaeology major. And um, I was lucky enough to be able to choose a, a ring that was dated back to the Middle Ages um, and got to spend uh, 90 amazing minutes alone in a room um, with this amazing object um, where they allowed us to handle it with gloves, um, sketch it, uh, to be able to um, be that close to an object that I had only studied about and read in books, um, and then to be able to be in the same room with it at the Met um, was just mind-blowing. Very cool. Um, Nicole, given the, the list that I gave you of the ones the museums I saw in the 12 months, which, which is why I don't understand what a museum is, particularly lifeboats, but <laughs> what, what, what are museums for? What is a museum? Okay, hmm. what is a museum? The impulse of humans to collect and show off the stuff that they've collected um, <laughs> is, you know, a, a, I won't say inborn, but, it you know. It brings them joy. You know, no. It, I think it brings people joy. Yeah, I yeah. think it does bring, bring yeah. people joy. But I think that impulse has a very long history that's almost as, you know, that's the same as the history of cave painting, right? It's the, hist the same as <coughs> the same time horizon or the same timeline of people making art. Um, for as long as humans have been making art, humans have been wanting to show it off um, and show off the stuff that they have. So. We could, there's so many ways to answer that question, I think. One way you could, you could answer that is say museums are traditionally, or you can think of a museum as a space for people to show off what they have, what they've made. The etymology of museums, I could be that kind of nerd and talk about like what muse actually meant, like this kind of space of inspiration, a kind of worshipful consideration of stuff. Um, but I think, more appropriate to what we've convened today to talk about, I think, is to, the idea that museums serve as a kind of third space. So not just a space for people to show off what they have, which is a thing that museums do, but not all museums are collecting institutions. Not all museums have walls. Not all museums are brick and mortar. So I think of museums, right, so I think of museums as a, as serving that kind of social function where we get to consider who we've been and who we might be. Um, and yeah, serving that so social function in a way that's different from kind of formal education or other temples or forums that we might attend, so. Gretchen, what is, what are, go, go ahead. Thank you. <laughs> I asked the question because it's ridiculous because there are many things, but, and your answer will presumably indicate the, 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 some priorities that you have. So what, is, what, what are museums for? Well, I think a number of the places that you listed off are very specific sites. It's all about, it's place-based, mm -hmm. right? And some of those places that you noted can exist nowhere else than where they exist. Mm -hmm. And um, we think about that with the Liberia Tar Pits, 
is probably no other museum as a better example of that. We really can't have that museum any other place. And so to, you know, well, back to the digital question that can come and go, but I think these, these are physical places that, that mark, mark moments, they mark deep, deep time moments, but they are about place. And, Lisa? and for me, it's museums are places of, and what you referenced was inarticulate love. Mm -hmm. um, those are the places that we go to to see the. That brings things. me back to my marital moment too. But go on. <laughs> <laughs> um, it brings us to places where we get to see the things that we love, um, that we're interested mm -hmm. in, whether it's lifeboats um, or Steinbeck's wallets or Monet's. Um, it get, it brings mm -hmm. us back to something that we we cherish. Um, and I think museums have also served another purpose, which is to remind us of the things that we shouldn't forget about. Mm -hmm. um, so whether that's a painful past, um, whether that's a hopeful future, um, whether it's something that we need to learn in order to be able to survive as a society, um, these are all the things that we, we look to museums for mm -hmm. as a trusted source um, not just as a caretaker, um, but also a place where you have people who can um, tell you, remind you, educate you, inspire you on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think at the heart, that's what museum professionals are here to do. Okay. Uh, we, we purposely did not put someone from an art museum here tonight. Why do they get so much money and prestige? <laughs> well, are they better than you all? Are they, are they here? <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? Well, I think I'm kind of cheating because I'm not technically at a specific museum, and although I've worked at museums, in so the you can past, insult anybody. Well, no, well, <laughs> or <laughs> um, we can sort of ride, lift all boats as the tide does what it, you know. Yeah. Um, but my work in museums has been at more of the national level, so. Um, you know, my specific excitement, though, about part of the ways that museums tell stories includes the visual. And there are some, you know, there are some historic house museums that are very well moneyed. So um, it's hard to say. I mean, one of the most popular Smithsonian is, is the air and space. Um, and that's not art. Uh, I mean, we could broadly think about how we define it, but it's not properly an art okay. museum. So I don't know, it's a tough question to answer, but I, I don't, I, maybe it's because of how people, um, sometimes someone else was talk, talking to me recently about how we kind of um, think about art as something that like, so many schools aren't teaching art, so we don't really have close experience mm -hmm. with it all the time, but we know it's important. So maybe there's this kind of um, psychic distance or this kind of framing where publics feel like art is important and special and something that like... It's, it's not about the billionaires? <laughs> I mean, uh, let me go on. Let me, let, me I mean, go, let me go. I'm going to get to the billionaires in a second because I think they, the, the rich people play a really important role. Not, maybe perhaps not in Smithsonian as much, you have federal funding, but uh, well, you get, you, a lot of it's from rich people. But before we get to rich people, um, <laughs> Uh, 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 do art museums get a disproportionate amount of money and attention, in either of your opinions? I'm uh, just trying to start fights. Dis <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'd have to say I don't think so. Yeah. Um, I, I think that um, you know, it kind of 
it, it kind of depends. I, I, I'm going to give their typical museum person answer, um, which it kind of depends. <laughs> um, it depends on how you, you count expenses. Okay. Um, it, it depends on if you calculate in the cost. Art is expensive to take care of. My impression is that art museums were more of a civic, e gave more to the civic ego. They gave more to the wealthy. It, they are, they, there are places to show off. Uh, it, more than a natural history museum. Now, am I entirely incorrect? Historically, yes. <laughs> Please, correct me. Thinking about the, or well, in the U.S., sort of the first museums were kind of a hodgepodge. Mm -hmm. So Charles Wils Wilson Peale's whole thing was like raising the tastes of American citizens. And so that included art, but it also included um, China and silver and mm -hmm. uh, Taxidermy, you know, so, so the original museum, the, the first museums weren't as uh, specialized as they are now. So it's hard mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. it's hard to, that's a tricky question. Mm -hmm. uh, Gretchen, I, I read this, I was reading some essays, I did a little preparation, and I loved this line. I'm going to read to you, I want your, your reaction. Did I write this? <laughs> no, this is not. Okay. A, <laughs> like something that would have been brilliant, though, had <laughs> I thought of that. Okay. Um, Museums were created from a desire to present both emotional evocations and the results of rational inquiry. Hmm. So a tension of purpose appeared in museums right from the beginning. In recent times, museums have generally thought of themselves as more rational than expressive. You think more, it says more recently were more rational than expressive? In recent times, museums have generally thought of themselves as more rational than expressive. But in general, what do you make of that notion that there was an inherent, there was intention throughout? And you can answer if you wish. I don't think, well, at least from a natural history museum perspective, I don't think there was always an intention with collecting. Um, you know, it was doing expeditions and you're the first person to be in this part of the world and boy, I might as well grab these, these butterflies or these birds or these mm -hmm. things while I'm here because mm -hmm. I don't know what someone else may find valuable in them. So I don't think there was always an intention in the initial Collecting. No, the the, 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 the point is, is there was the tension between the, the, the desire to evoke feeling and the desire to share knowledge. Mm. That there was always some tension. In Do you have any comment on mm. that? I, I think so. I, I mean, I think that, um, you know, that this idea that museums sort of came out of these cabinet of curiosities mm -hmm. that Nicole was was referencing, and then they moved into primarily higher um, education institutions, universities. You know, Oxford, um, Harvard had these large collections, and and really that once you got beyond sort of this idea of collecting, they became collections that were supposed to uh, be studied. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where the sort of, of the rational side of our brain started to trigger. And somehow we thought that we could measure beauty, that we could um, measure uh, <coughs> the evolution of, of humans through, um, you know, through fossil remains and through bones, that we could, we could count the number of butterflies and, and see progression through that. Um, and then from that, I always like to think that museums then started to think that um, we were objective, right? We were the tellers of, um, of sort of scientific truth or neutral truth when it came to the things that we presented. Um, and I think what people tended to forget is behind the scenes, you had curators <coughs> and collectors, collections managers, um, 
donors, wealthy donors in some cases, who were actually dictating what got collected and what didn't, what got counted, what didn't get, collect, what didn't get counted. Mm -hmm. and, and suddenly today we realize that actually museums aren't neutral because they have people working for them. We curators have a point of view. And, and when you go in to a curated show, there is a point of view there. They are deliberately choosing to show some works of art um, and not showing others, or they're telling a particular part of the story and not something else. Um, and that's where sort of where it kind of breaks down this idea of objective rationality, of objectiveness. Um, when it comes to you know what's on display, now does the digitization of the collections also ah. does it also sort of decrease the power of the traditional curators? So I would say that 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 was the theory um, a long <laughs> time a long time ago, ten years ago, uh, <laughs> back in the day. Um, that was the theory that by uh, digitizing all of the artwork, all of the papers photographing all the butterflies, um, that we were um, freeing knowledge. We were freeing the specimen to be out there and that anybody could then interpret it. What we did was we flooded the internet with databases of images that nobody looked at. Um, <laughs> sorry for those of you who have been spending your life digitizing things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but part of it is because um, it's just there is so much stuff. What you're seeing in the average museum is usually about 1%, maybe if you're lucky, 10% of what's in their collections. And suddenly you flood that out into, this, into um, the internet, into, this, into people's living rooms, um, and suddenly they have to go through all 10,000 butterflies to make sense of it. It becomes a very difficult task. So. I would say that rather than dis diminishing the need for curators or scientists or people who can help to interpret the story, it actually increases it. May it may have enhanced it. Well, and there's two dimensions to curation and digitization of collections, right? One is the importance of digitizing many, many, many specimens so that scientists all over the world can add data about these specimens. Mm -hmm. That's different from digitizing things mm -hmm. from a public exhibition right. curation perspective for the general public to just enjoy the many, 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 many things you've collected because you like to collect, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the digitization, digitization piece is really important from a expanding the, the power of museums and the importance of museums and pulling all those collections closer together. Mm -hmm. On the public side, a different, yeah, you're just scanning things to kind of say, I scanned 20,000 herbarium sheets today, mm -hmm. right? But it's not to what end, but the scientists would say, something different about mm -hmm. that. My dissertation, I now have this information mm -hmm. where I didn't have to travel to <coughs> that museum to be able to access that information, which mm -hmm. is... Nicole, do you have anything to add? I'm thinking about a couple things. I'm thinking about um, the division of labor that happens in museums. Um, so I guess I'm thinking of the people who actually do the work of manually copying. I'm getting this from a woman named Seema Rao who's written about museums and AI and what museum labor looks like. Um, you know, who are the people who are doing the grunt work of <coughs> digitizing the stuff um, and how is their labor valued vis-a-vis -vis curators? And then the second part, the second thing that's on my mind is I, I, I'm not so sure that it's the digitization work that, that 
puts pressure on the kind of power elitism of the curator so much as it is demands from people who are using the digital space. So the, the demands of the visiting public who say, we actually show up in a museum with a computer in our pocket. So we're not looking for a museum to give us a kind of didactic description. We're not looking for museums to be the Wikipedia. So I think that puts pressure on to your question of like curatorial expertise. I think that um, is one way, one place where not so much in the digitization, but in the preparation of visitors, right? And what visitors know um, that, that puts some, um, I don't know, I, I keep saying pressure, right? That, that sort of changes what curators uh, can do um, and, and kind of forces curators to open up that idea of expertise. Uh, mm -hmm. Lisa and Gretchen, have, has the digitization of collections proven to have reached more people? Does the presence of so much, so many items on the computer, have more people been exposed to the items that, that exist within collections? Do sure, we know? Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, when you just look at the number of, of hits cool, right? on a site, yeah. of course, yes. Um, and especially for students, um, you know, th to have access where you don't have to, to mm -hmm. um, like w when I gr was growing up in, in Denver, um, we would have to take the bus down to be able to get to the museum to study, uh, uh, you know, a piece of art or to go to the Natural History Museum. Um, now you can pull out your phone or, or look at it online. Um, and be able to have access to that, which is amazing. You don't have to go to Spain. You don't have to go to Finland um, to see some of these things. Mm -hmm. uh, so definitely more people are seeing it. What, how does the, the business model, if you will, of that museum in Spain or Finland, <coughs> how do they react to the fact that I can just be in LA on my iPhone in little Tokyo? Do, it, do, are they reacting to that? that are, are, they, are they fearing at all that the peop fewer people might go? Or no? No. I think back in the day there was a fear when mm -hmm. digital was new um, that this, this wide access would mean that people wouldn't want to come to your physical space anymore. Mm -hmm. But I think what we found is over time what it just is reinforced is the power of the actual object or the actual place. Mm -hmm. um, you want to be able to go there to experience it yourself rather than um, having it be flattened on a screen or even with the best technology, seeing it in three dimensions on a screen is very different than in seeing it in person. It's like that moment in the room with the medieval ring was so powerful, I could have just seen it online. I would really be grateful if any of you can explain this to me. Okay, two experiences I had. One, I was in the Sunnylands mansion in Rancher mm -hmm. Mirage. And they had, I don't know, a Renoir and a, you know, these different impressionists. And they, I was like, oh, man, amazing. They said, oh, they're fake. <laughs> I was like, whatever, I walked faster. <laughs> and then I was in the Smithsonian National Museum of American History in one of the, the women's history uh, uh, rooms. And they pulled out a drawer and they said, this is Susan B. Anthony's shawl that she wore as she testified to mm -hmm. Congress. And I said, wow. It was like a talisman. What is it I'm feeling then? Or what am I, what, what is it that I'm after? Or what, why do I say wow? Why do, why do I get a little tingle in my, what's going on there? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I'm really glad you feel it, though. Yeah. I, um, it's, it's like your inarticulate love. Like, yeah. I don't But I you're don't know. here I, to, to articulate yeah. why I know, audiences I, love the real. It's my lifehood now, though. This museum, I'm kind of banking on it at this point. <laughs> <laughs> or at least for another 20 years or so. Um, a few, a couple of weeks ago, there was the free-for-all um, in the Natural History Museum, and um, the Brea Tar Pits were each open for a day for free, and I, a lot of us um, volunteered a number of hours and spent time on the floor, and for those of us who are typically behind the scenes, it's always such a kick to get to spend that kind of time just watching people in the galleries, and, you know, I had my, my blue Natural History Museum shirt on, I was ready to answer questions, and the question I got all day long, no matter where I was, is that real? <laughs> it, is that is that real? It's not. That those aren't real bugs, are they? Yeah, those are. Real. And the people like could not believe it. And I thought, I, why is that so unbelievable? But they just couldn't believe it. And I wonder if we were having this conversation ten years ago, would that have been the question that I was getting all day? Mm -hmm. Right. It's like the, it's, I don't know. If, I don't know if because everything you can see everything on your phone. You can see a video of pretty much anything you want and don't want. But is it, is it that much more unbelievable now that it mm -hmm. is real there and you're mm -hmm. actually touching this rock that is that that came from Antarctica and it has a dinosaur is bone that in real? it? I can't believe I'm touching. You're letting me touch this, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's it's amplified because we're so used to being digital. It, it's, it's nothing interesting to be on your phone seeing pictures anymore. Like, that's so... So it's all in, of our enhanced the value that, like, of an object. I, I wonder it's enhanced the it's value it's of, of, of no. the curator. Uh, um, any comments, Nicole? Is that real? <laughs> I'm, I'm a little stumped because I can think of so many people for whom the physical objects telling their stories aren't extant, right? There just aren't any. There aren't objects that tell those stories, yeah. Right, right, there aren't um, objects that tell those stories. But museums are still special places. Um, culture, I'm thinking about the ways that culturally specific museums in many places in the world tackle that problem of how do you tell a story without the object? Mm -hmm. um, and I think even with so, yeah, I don't mean to just be the contrarian on the panel. I'm you're doing a good <laughs> job of it. Uh, but I think then what you're, yeah. but that's, then that's where digital is our, is our friend, right? I mean, it's not saying that this yeah. is replacing anything or that only, only real objects is, are meaningful, because that's not true. But mm -hmm. it's where, then it's where you're bringing in digital through the, the, the oral histories or other ways that you're bringing in the voices of these people in different ways. Perfect segue. Um, Lisa. Yes. Can there be a museum without objects? Yes, there can be. <laughs> tell us about it. Um, well, I can tell you about my organization. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, we are uh, the, the Smithsonian Asian Pacific American Center. Uh, we are not a collecting part of the Smithsonian. And what we say is we are a museum without walls. Um, we also happen to be a museum without objects. And so oftentimes people will say, well, are you really then a museum? Going back to your original question of, of what makes uh, a museum. And I think <coughs> that it, it, it really harkens back to is when you look at an object, and this goes back to is it real? Um, when you look at an object, the object is a placeholder, in, in my opinion, for the story or the knowledge that's behind it, the experience that it represents. Susan B. Anthony Shaw, if you didn't tell somebody that that was her Shaw, it's just a Shaw. 
Um, but when you tell, uh, tell somebody that that's Susan B. Anthony's, all of these stories that you've heard about, all of the um, struggles that you knew that she went through and all of these women went through become embodied in this one object. Um, and then that's when those stories become real. And so a lot of times um, when you think about the need for those stories and how those stories can help us empathize with people, how uh, they make people visible who, were, who used to be invisible in history um, or in art or some of these other areas, how important having those stories are, uh, really. And sometimes that they can be embodied in an object, um, sometimes they need to be told in other ways. And what we're really exploring um, as a museum, literally without walls, because we don't have a public a space that's open to the public, um, in Washington, D.C., we're all about making sure that those stories are told um, using whatever means that we have, whether that's digital, public programs, um, uh, working with artists who become the voice for some of these stories, um, helping us look at things in new and different ways. A and so for me, really, what I think of, of our center as part of the Smithsonian is we are storytellers um, in the best possible sense of the word. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I've been trying to do to keep my employees happy, I've been thinking of buying one of these virtual reality chairs so they can take their breaks in the kitchen and like <laughs> be at the Yosemite or whatever. Um, and I was wondering, um, it, it, and apparently there, there, there's this active attempt to sell these to museums and I, I'm too scared and too old to go on one of those things. And, and I'm wondering, Gretchen, if, if this is something about, you put together exhibitions at the Natural History Museum. Mm -hmm. Do you deal with these companies? Are they pitching you or are you going, is this where you're going? Are you going into virtual reality? Are you taking we've us there? We've gone there. All right, okay, yeah, tell us about it. We've gone there and I would say probably every week there's a new kind of opportunity with AR and VR and. Um, what I are you liking? What are they selling you? Uh, I think that for most of them, it's the, the possibility of um, telling stories and getting access to the collections and then figuring out a way to um, create a world with that that they can take people to. It's already sensor it's sensorial as well, right? Mm -hmm. You're, is there scent and movement? It can be. Yeah. It can be vibrations under your feet and mm -hmm. smoke and really make you feel like you're a tree on fire. <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> so that's one, or they can be, you know, much more. Um, Are you buying stuff. that one? Do you have that one? I've done that one. I'm not buying that one. No. <laughs> um, but the the challenge. No, no, sorry, taking you back to the feeling like a tree on fire. And mm -hmm. so you've you've done this. Yes. Is it one of the chairs, or is it goggles? You're standing or? on a platform, and the platform—it's a haptic experience. A platform. As you are a seed in the soil growing up, you're vibrating as a seed would on a molecular level, and then you're growing up, and then you're rising up to be this huge tree in the rainforest, and ultimately the rainforest is burned, and you go down. I'm sorry, it. that sounds unbelievably cool. Yeah. Am I wrong? And so as you're doing this, you're smelling soil as you're coming up Peyote. out of the ground. Um, at some point, there is smoke, so you're aware that you are. So it's, I mean, it's, it, it's then you, if you weren't already concerned <coughs> about trees, then wow. the, the, the idea is that you would then have this great concern for the so what is so, so given that you're seeing a lot yeah. of these, and you, I, I don't know, I, I, forgive me, but I think you should have bought that. Um, 
<laughs> I mean, what are you looking for if that's not it? I well, could have been a tree for 15 so I, minutes. I mean, it is, it is complicated because, um, you know, when you work in a museum, in a natural history museum, you're wanting to make sure that you're scientifically accurate. And so the question of artistic license with some of these things, it's like, well, my arms, like a tree's branches don't really flex like that. <laughs> um, there's not really that many macaws in a rainforest. I mean, it gets, you get to the point where it becomes like you want to make sure that when people come to the Natural History Museum, they are expecting... Is this really how trees feel and talk? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but there's a question of, um, is this an art project or is this a vehicle that's going to be conveying scientific content? And if it's mm -hmm. the latter, if, if we're saying these are... We've worked with some artists, they've done some really beautiful immersive environments inspired by our specimens, inspired by our science. Come get a sense of this world, then that's great. If we're trying to use them really to be a stand-in for some of our other ways of delivering scientific content in an exhibition, then we have to make sure that it's holding up to yeah. that kind of review process. So that's, it's a finding the right partners mm -hmm. who might come along with you on that. And then there's a the question of um, budget. Um, we live near Hollywood, but we do not work with Hollywood budgets mm -hmm. when it comes to digital experiences in the gallery. So there's kind of a, a meshing of that. So. Lisa, are you open to virtual reality in your? Oh, definitely. We're, you don't we're, like walls, but you'll use. Yeah, but we'll reality. use virtual reality. <laughs> um, but you know, I think one of the things that um, you know we're always cautious about is is once you invest, and it is usually an investment into a particular technology, um, because we're museums, we have to care and upkeep these things, right? Um, so if you, say, t uh, record somebody's story um, in, an, in order to have it be in an augmented reality situation or, or virtually, um, you know, how do you make sure that those, the, that data isn't lost um, or that the platform doesn't change? Uh, you know, what was it, 10 years ago? Apps were the biggest thing and museums invested mm -hmm millions, if not hundreds of millions Fools. of dollars into it. And now um, nobody wants to download an app because it takes too much room up I on our phone. I have three phones so I can fit all my apps in. Okay. Um, and so you can loan your phones out when somebody <laughs> exactly, comes. Exactly. Um, but now all of it is about um, being able to uh, access content um, through your web browser. Mm -hmm. And so that's what's being developed now. Uh, so that's the other thing. I mean, you, you want to be able to, to explode the boundaries and to utilize technology to help you do that. But then you also, because resources are limited and technology changes, you want to ensure that you're making the right investment right. Um, and that you're not so going to be doing... So there's a certain caution then with Yeah, all and this. to add to some of the logistical things, um, you know, there are headsets that need to be cleaned and you have hundreds of kids come through a day. <laughs> I mean, it, it, that's not romantic, but that's, that's the reality. It's like, okay, what are we doing with the headsets? How are we cleaning them? Right. Um, that's you know, some logistical things, which you, we've we can work through those things, but just mm -hmm. kind of knowing that these headsets in three months, are, that's not gonna be the latest headset right. anymore. Right. So that's an investment. But also, um, I think a lot of the questions for us are around what is motivating people to come to the museum in the first place. Um, we're doing a lot of research on this right now. We know that, um, which is heartbreaking for a lot of people at the museum, but visitors are not often coming to learn. You did a study to find that out? Yeah, I know. Maybe you could have told me that. <laughs> but they're, they're coming to spend time together, right? They're coming to have a social experience. So if they're coming to have a social experience and now you're plugging them into a headset mm -hmm. and putting them in a chair over here, how do you 
I mean, there are obviously VR and AR experiences, AR especially, but VR where you can be more in a social shared virtual environment, but that's what, they're coming to have some time together, so how do we support mm -hmm. that? Is there any sense of whether that's growing or decreasing or it's been all the way, it's been all that way, that way all the time, whether people are going there for community? Is, is that static or where are we in that trajectory? I think that, I think it, that it kind of gets to what I was talking about with the third space piece. I think you can look at some museums that have always had to be more open. Um, museums that don't have, you know, billion dollar founders or billion dollar donor donors who keep it sustained. Museums who, uh, museums that have the community as their bread and butter. So on the one hand, you can look at those kinds of institutions. Um, I'm thinking about like, CAM here in LA or the Studio Museum in Harlem, right? museums that have community as their centers um, that had to take a different tack. And so, yeah, um, you can kind of find examples of the, the, of the future right? in, a, in places that we might overlook. And I, I would have to say that it used to be that museums were the, were the quiet place, right? It was supposed to be contemplative. You weren't supposed to talk. Mm -hmm. Everybody talked in <laughs> whispers. Um, and, and you were supposed to just admire what was there. Um, now, if you go to a museum that's utterly silent and there's nobody there talking to one another, interacting with one another, um, how long are you really going to stay in that place? You kind of do your quick walk through and then you're out. So, so you're saying it's actually our desire for community in a, in a museum is growing? I would say I so. so. I think that the social aspect of that, to be able to share the experience, mm -hmm. to, to look at a piece of art and say, what do you see? Mm -hmm. um, I hear the curator saying that there's broad circular strokes. I'm not seeing circular strokes. Um, those are things that, that start to enhance the experience rather than take away from it. I think also this is informing kind of how we design the spaces in museums, um, as well as part of this community studies that we're doing. The um, this researchers came, kind of did all this research through many phases of community listening and surveys on the site and offsite, and came up with these five psychographic profiles for our museum visitors. Social bonders, I'm not gonna get them all. Social bonders, intellectual, um, oh dear. I remember the um, reluctant homebodies. They're the ones who are going to use their digital at home and be fine, right. but you're never going to reach them. Social mm -hmm. bonders, um, and I'm sorry I'm not remembering all of them, but there were a lot of them were around, like they're looking for new experiences, they're looking for social experiences, they're looking to bond with people they love. Mm -hmm. So how you design an exhibition space or the spaces in between isn't like a single screen or a single painting with a single small label. It's, okay, how do we make this a multi-touch? How do we make this an experience that many people can be reading at once? How can we make this something that they can be doing while others are watching? And so you're thinking much more about the design to encourage those kind of bonding moments. So I think that you're seeing that in the way we design those spaces. So I think it is true, the third space and, and whether it's a selfie moment it sounds like right. a, it sounds like a great time to be in the museum business. It is. Yeah. It is. And I'll also say, I think um, you're starting to see, you just made me think of something, Gretchen. Um, you're starting to see where museums are not feeling threatened by new technology. It's not that museums have to go back and, like you said, retrofit or invest hundreds of millions of dollars. But museums are really taking up this idea of being experimental. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to buy a whole fleet of VR sets or a whole bunch of chairs, um, but 
you can experiment, right? You can mm -hmm. try a pop-up museum. You can, right. you know. So we've clearly established that digital technology has not rendered museums obsolete in any way. That was easy. <laughs> However, and you have a little well bit of a well you have a little bit of a head start here, but I want you all to answer the last question. She Nicole wrote an essay on this. What is it, Nicole? What does a museum look like in 2040? Oh, I do write that. <laughs> <laughs> um, What's the year? 2040. You're next. You're next. I think it depends on the museum and the community that it wants to serve. I think, you know, the museum in 2040, you talked about the importance of museums as place-specific institutions. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, I'm going to quote the uh, rapper Most Def, who was like, when you ask yourself, where do you think hip-hop is going? You have to look at yourself, where do you think you are going? So I think mm -hmm. the museums in 2040, we can tell a doomsday scenario and say, you know, in 2040, <laughs> museums will be more elitist, they will only employ people with Ivy League degrees. They will be quiet places hmm. um, that only want you to touch the stuff. Or we can tell a story about what we want museums in 2040 to be, hmm. which means that in 2019, we have to do some work to get to <laughs> where we want to be in 2040. Mm -hmm. I think to build on what you were starting out saying in this idea that um, we can be well, less precious and I think that goes with experimenting with digital. It also goes with the, how do we bring more voices in. There's this rational um, classification that we know everything, and that's like the single story about science or about a culture, and that's, we're not, we, we're not sure about that anymore, right? And we certainly know that our visitors aren't seeing themselves in that, so that's not comfortable. <coughs> so I think it's continuing to, to open up so these galleries aren't necessarily what I, as a VP of exhibitions have decided you should see. Well, I still hope I get to do some of that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not for me to be the expert to do that. So I think it's like mm -hmm. in 2040, if we see these galleries as just constantly shifting with how the community is, you know, what's, what's important and, and whether digital, how digital plays into that, I don't think we'll even notice whether it's digital mm -hmm. or, I mean, just be kind of mm -hmm. the seamless the seamless story. And just to sort of go off of that, I think it's um, in 2040 we'll have museums that are about people, the people coming to visit rather than the objects themselves. Um, and I think that in order to be able to do that, uh, we need to understand that it, the objects are a vehicle to get people to that inarticulate love that you were just talking about. And sometimes that inarticulate love can happen in the strangest places. We all fall in love in the, um, in the most likely scenario, unlikely scenarios. Um, so it could be a, a dinosaur eraser in the gift shop. That might be what, what stays with story. you. <laughs> Sorry, that, that's a reference uh, to, to a story about what you remember yeah. uh, from, from a, a museum experience. Um, or uh, it could be a work of art. It could be a dinosaur. Um, but that's actually what I hope the museums of the future are about, is being able to figure out how we have people go and fall in love. You guys are great. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. <laughs> Hi, I'm Chris Davies. Um, my question is, I see there's a proliferation of online museums, virtual mm -hmm. museums. Is that, do you think, something that's going to be expanded further in the future? There are a lot of 
things, entities out there calling themselves museums. Um, ice cream museum. That's on my list of questions I didn't so get to. So I think, um, not that you can't, not that we have to like be elitist about what is a museum. Um, I don't know, it's interesting. I, I, if you look at a lot of museum websites, there's a lot of us that are pulling back on how much content we're putting online because it is labor intensive and it feels like it needs to be as dynamic as everything else in your galleries. So if you sort of start doing a survey on your favorite museum sites, and like, wow, they're not telling me a whole lot about this exhibition, they're just telling me that it's open now. So I don't know if, um, at least on the museum side, there seems to be a shift in kind of how we're using the, the web for our own purposes. Um, but a proliferation of, of other ones. Maybe you, the futurist, have some ideas, huh? I don't know. Well, similarly, I think there are a lot of um, museums that are based online. Some of them to showcase, and here's, here's the, the A word, but to showcase art that's born digital. So hmm. um, in the same way that like new digital technologies are enabling new forms of production, I think you get new forms of collecting that information. Mm. So display. We, yeah, and yeah. display. Yeah. Yep. So mm. I agree. I think it, it is expanding. Hi, my name is Moira Shuri. And um, until I came to America in 1998, I had never visited a museum in my life. And I'm from India, which has a very rich culture, but no mm -hmm. usable museums. Mm -hmm. uh, but the only way I visited museums was through Hollywood movies. Mm -hmm. And so my <laughs> question to you is, you know, just like when Jurassic Park came out and it, it led to this uh, burst in enthusiasm for paleontology, um, do you have a favorite uh, pop culture moment or movie that you think sort of captures people's love for museums or that we should go and see? Mm. I'll, I'll have to answer that one, which is a night at the museum, right? Well, I, I, I think that there was a moment where before that came out, it really wasn't cool to work in a natural history museum. And after that, I got so many questions like, do things really come alive <laughs> that night? Um, and suddenly it became cool to do one of the overnight slumber parties that some museums have. So that's, that's my, cool. my favorite yeah. pop culture reference. I, I don't, this is like pop culture, but from the early 1930s, and this is just to kind of give a little plug for a project that we're working on that will open this fall, which is the natural history of horror films. Ooh, um, but fantastic. we're looking at the early, early, early horror films and the scientific experiments and discoveries mm -hmm. that inspired things like Frankenstein, Dracula, the mummy. I mean, these, these kind of, the specimens that inspired the movies and the horror films and kind of how that relates back to natural history. So that's, not really what you're asking, but I think it's interesting to look back and kind of see where some of the, at least the natural history pieces are hidden. No. I think I'd have to go with the um, museum scene in Black Panther. Oh, yeah. Um, I think that opened up museums as a place of controversy, as a place of... Um, it had a huge impact on museums. Yeah, it, yeah. Had, a huge it had a huge impact on museums. And then it had a huge impact on young people who had never thought about museums as places to ask questions about power. Mm -hmm. um, so I had a bunch of students asking me, what does that mean? And is, does that really happen? And, you know, mm -hmm. and the Twitterverse kind of went crazy yeah. um, thinking about that. And so mm -hmm. that scene was filmed at the High Museum of Art in Atlanta even though it was supposed to be a fictional British museum. And so the high, you know, some of the docents there get to talk to students, you know, like mm. baby, baby, you know, uh, mm -hmm. 
fourth graders um, about like, did anyone see Black Panther? Did you, you know? <laughs> so it brings that, that newer generation of people yeah. into thinking about museums. That's a good one. My name is Richard Foss. Curious to know, at some museums, they have tried to create more intensive environments by adding elements of sound and scent in order to try, sometimes in oblique ways, in terms of taking a landscape and trying to add the sounds and scents of that landscape in order to sort of put you into the mood of the person who was painting that in plain air, or in some other way, uh, in some cases, uh, this being very interruptive. Uh, how successful is this, and do you believe that trying to create these more immersive environments is actually a successful thing? I think yes. Um, I don't think that every single gallery should be that way, but if you think about how you experience a world when you're walking down the street um, and how you learn, how you take in all the cues of your environment and learn, so I think part of that is immersion and we know visitors want to be immersed when they come to museums. They tell us time and time again, take me there, take me there, I want to go there, which is kind of what VR is helping people do. So there's that part, but I think it's also recognizing that our visitors are coming to museums with so many different um, abilities and disabilities and um, how do we provide that sort of information and cues and learning kind of opportunities for their different places. So maybe it's, maybe it's sound that you're really responding to or something visual or something tactile. So I think it's also trying to address that we have visitors coming with very different um, desires and needs. Uh, hi, my name is Julian Ponce, and um, my question is, first of all, I'm a retired university bureaucrat and financial manager, but I am a volunteer docent now at the Natural History Museum and the Pacific Asian Museum in Pasadena. In the past, I've been with the Autry. Uh, it's a sneaky way to get a high-quality education. <laughs> um, but, and also to say that in these three museums, the subject content had nothing to do with what I needed to know to make a living, so this is all new to me. But my question is, one of the, my learning experiences has been there's some pretty stark differences in generational communication, the way people my age or people younger or even younger learn, communicate, mm -hmm. interact. That's one thing they try and teach us, but on the other hand, there's been some resistance among people in my generation because we learned how to sit down and be didactic and mm -hmm. learn things. Mm -hmm. People don't do that anymore, mm -hmm. uh, or they don't like doing it anymore. So I was wondering, how, you know, does that strike any responsive chords with you, and kind of how do you keep up and address that issue? Um, understanding what and how people learn um, is super important, and that learning styles have really changed. And, and to understand that it used to be if you were educated, if you had a good museum experience, you would walk away being able to recite the name of the artist um, or the date that something happened um, or the number of people who were incarcerated. You know, those were the things that, that were, were important. And now what we're starting to realize is that, uh, and there's been studies on this, where um, if that was the focus, students would walk away, visitors would walk away, and when you would say to them, well, what was your museum experience like? What do you remember? They couldn't tell you. Um, they couldn't actually remember what they saw. But if you started to trigger some of these other things, the emotions of, of what it meant to have your civil liberties taken away, um, to, to be able to understand the, uh, the, the sheer number of, of species of a particular animal that were out, was out there, or the number of animals that fell into the La Brea tar pit, um, students will, and visitors would walk away with one or two or three or four memorable things that they could come away with from their experience. Um, 
And when you have to weigh walking away with no knowledge versus walking away with a, a knowledge that might not be 100% correct, mm -hmm. to your point about you know, how trees move, <laughs> um, uh, isn't it better to maybe have people walk away with that indescribable moment mm -hmm. than it is for them to be able to recite facts and figures. And I know that that's a really hard thing, especially um, for older generations where facts and figures indicated knowledge. Mm -hmm. Now it's about, um, I think more so about understanding. Do you understand the experience? Do you have a connection to <coughs> that? Um, do you get the bigger message of conservation? Do you get the bigger message of protecting civil liberties? Um, those are the things that we hope people will walk away from. And I'll have to do a shout out because docents, all of you are amazing. You, <laughs> you every day, mm -hmm. you take a group of students um, uh, who have been taken out of their, their classroom environment and, and you lead them through these museums um, on a vault and nobody pays you to do that. Um, so thank you. Hi, my name is uh, Joelle Debro, and I was told not to touch the mic. <laughs> <laughs> I want to reintroduce a, co a comment that you made earlier and invite you to for, uh, explain it a little bit more. You were going to touch on the billionaire donors and their influence. No one um, wanted to touch it. Well, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Let me finish Please. because it's a two-parter. Uh, the billionaire donors and their control and influence over not only giving the money but manipulating and how the museums develop. And here's the flip part of it. It's a story, true story, of an arts, uh, arts <coughs> commissioner who spoke to a group of small and mid-sized mayors talking about the role of arts in the city. And afterward, they came up to her and all asked, how do we get a museum in our town? Which means that a person who has money can create a space for love, but the experience our moderator had finding the love in all these other places, there's a gap between the places, and I just was wondering if you could talk about that. I don't, I, I, you know, I don't know what in this country the museum field looks like <coughs> outside of what some people might name as obscene wealth. Our museums are not, you know, in, in the UK, um, in other places around, like in other European countries and other places around the world, you have a kind of government yes. support for museums. Yes. Yes. And so the uncomfortable truth, and maybe that's part of what makes it so difficult to talk about or so difficult to pull apart, is that the, the part of the sustaining energy or the, the sustaining funds for museums in this country comes from private donors. Um, and so it's hard to disentangle that. It's hard to, you know, to say what does a, I mean, I think we can come up with some examples of like what museums might look like. The Smithsonian is a, is a really good one to think about what, what does a different kind of financial structure look like in museums. But that's kind of the water we swim in or sink in. Um, well, and I'll just, add to that because I think there is another model out there um, outside of obscene wealth and billion, billion dollar uh, donors, which is the community-based museum. Um, the Japanese American National Museum across the way is a great example of, of a community coming together and saying, we need a museum and we're going to build it ourselves if nobody else is going to do this. 
and um, the power of a community coming together to say this is a value to this small town, we're going to do it, um, and then funding it is, is incredibly powerful. I will have to say this, though, to go about sustaining that building once it's built, the collections once it's been amassed. Um, what I'll have to say for every single person in this audience, if you love a museum, if you go to a museum frequently, if you are part of that movement to help to create a community museum or a local historical society or, or even to some of the bigger institutions, um, even if it's at a small amount, support it. Uh, you know, put a $5 bill in a donation box, um, become a member, buy something at the gift shop, um, do the little things, because it's amazing how those little things really add up, and it shows and demonstrates that not only are you willing to, to be there when times are good and the doors are open for free, but that you're willing to put some of your dollars to it in order to make sure that it exists in the future. Um, and I know for a lot of people, it might be that $5 bill is all you can afford, but believe me, as a museum person who has gone through and emptied out that donation box, those $5 or $1 bills that I know came from a student's pocket that their parents gave them to buy a, eraser in the, a dinosaur eraser in the gift shop um, that actually got dropped into our donation box instead, that for me is what drives me to be a museum professional and maybe less so than the million dollars, although the million dollars is nice. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you so much. This has been a brilliant conversation. My name is Amy Shimshon Santo and I'm an artist and an educator and a mother of artists. Um, one of my tasks now is to hold the space of curriculum for emerging arts managers. Hmm. And many of my students at Sotheby's Institute of Art at Claremont Graduate University want to work in museums. And previously, arts managers were trained in kind of like, this is what happens in a theater, and this is what happens in a museum. And I know from the young people I'm around that genre is kind of being exploded. Mm -hmm. And in a way, it's kind of returned maybe in <clears throat> my heart to multidisciplinarity that was my home as both, a, you know, in my own creative practice and a lot of our cultures where you would never separate the food from the fashion, from the mm -hmm. visual art, from the dance, from the music. <clears throat> so my question is, given the explosion perhaps of genricity or genre and what museums are supposed to do, what do you think the museum professionals of the future <laughs> who want to create this kind of love should know how to do? You know, it's interesting because when I was going through school, there wasn't really, museum studies wasn't really a graduate degree much and I ended up kind of falling luckily into a job at a museum. I didn't even know people worked at museums. I'm not sure where I thought everything came from. But <laughs> I, I guess I was a great museum because I, I, just, I just suspended belief on anything. But, um, you know, if I think about like in 20 years, like the, um, the ability to listen to a really diverse group of people around a table and appreciate the experience that they're bringing to it. Because if you look at museums and you sort of say, okay, let me trace your life history to how you got here, I'd say one out of 10 people are gonna tell you, oh yeah, I've always wanted to work in a museum and I did this and this and this. Most of us kind of find up and like, well, this makes a lot of sense, right? So I think it's, at least in my experience, it's really been about being on a team and being able to just really step in and be curious and keep learning and keep learning because it's um, you're not in it for the for the money, <laughs> um, you know. And it's really just being open to the the people that you meet and the experiences that you might get and not knowing kind of where that that journey is going to go. So it's just a lot of team, 
lot of teamwork, and um, I think that multidisciplinary background is um, really helpful. Mm -hmm. um, and because you can learn, you can learn the budgets, you can learn how to do a contract, mm -hmm. you can learn all that stuff along the way. Um, it's really that interpersonal um, kind of relationship. And so, I, yeah, I would just add to that fight specialization. Um, that I would say to students for the future is uh, there is a tendency in museums especially and, and even in academia to specialize, right, to go deep. Um, and as a result, if you work in an art museum, you only know art. Um, and to be able to keep that sort of multidisciplinary mm -hmm. aspect, you have to be willing to sort of see beyond um, what people might be telling you you need to focus on. And I think the same goes with function. Um, just because you're a curator, believe me, I tell, tell this to my curators all the time, uh, doesn't mean that you can't, you're, you know, that you shouldn't be able to create a budget or, or write a grant narrative. Um, and or just because uh, you know you work in finance doesn't mean that you should you shouldn't know um, what your your museum is is having on display. Uh, that these moments of specialization actually I think uh, breaks us apart um, and sort of being able to work across and understand what people are saying whether they're a scientist or an artist, uh, a finance person or a curator. Uh, that's really where that special magic happens where you see. Um, you know, all of this come together in new and different ways. I would echo what they said, listen, fight specialization, um, partly by, uh, I would just add to that, um, watch, watch your ego. <laughs> um, and there's probably a better way to say that, but I really mean that. Sometimes in museums, I think we don't listen to docents. So we, you know, we spend money on big data projects that, you know, to tell us about our visitors when we could just ask the frontline staff, <laughs> you know. Um, and so there seems to be like a kind of stigma against like asking people who volunteer or asking people who might be making minimum wage, you know. Um, so listen, fight specialization try to mitigate some of the ego as you're doing that. Before we close, I'd like to thank uh, the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County for partnering with us and putting on this fantastic conversation tonight. So a round of applause for them, please. And also thank all of you for joining us. We're so glad you came. And also please stick around for the post-event reception just outside in the lobby. Grab a drink with us and all with all of our featured speakers tonight. And finally, a big round of applause for our speakers. Thank you so much. Thank you.